Sword of the Spirit in the Armor of God series. If you remember last month, we looked at the shield. This time we're looking at the sword. We're obviously looking at warfare. This is going to be a little different study than we may normally hear at church. So we're going to be hearing about war and fighting because, again, this is our offensive weapon. We're going to take a look at our scripture that we look at here, and that is Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. And that reads, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. We looked at that and saw that these are heavenly beings. We aren't wrestling against people. Our fight isn't with anybody else, but with these heavenly beings that have fallen, or demonic beings. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand or may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand therefore, having gird your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, therefore, I'm sorry, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Remember, we looked at above, and that's probably on all. We looked at shield, it means entrance, doorway, or door. So by picking up the shield of faith, we are closing the door to attack. By putting down our shield of faith, we are opening the door to attack. We also learned that it was like a muscle. So God allows trials to come in to wear us down, because like building muscle, when we lift, we tear down our muscle. They grow back stronger, so does our faith. In depth, look at the shield of faith, that study. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. So in fact, the Bible is our weapon. Shockingly, it's both offensive and defensive, just like any other weapon. You can use it to defend, you can use it to attack. It is all the weapons or all of the armor put together as a weapon. So the belt of truth how do you know what truth is? You have to go to the Word. The Word is actually described, I think it was Jordan Peterson, as the presupposition of the manifestation of truth, meaning it is the basis of truth upon which everything else is measured to determine if it is true. We have the breastplate of righteousness. How do we know how do we get the righteousness of Jesus? The Word of God. The gospel of peace. Where do we learn about the gospel? Word of God. The shield of faith. How do we learn to put our shield our faith up in God. We see how he acted in the Bible. And the helmet of salvation, how do we protect our mind against the attacks? By learning how it works in the Bible. Just like any weapon, though, if I handed you a rifle, you wouldn't go to battle without checking to make sure it's operable, making sure that it's not rusted, that the barrel's not bent. If it's a sword, you're going to make sure it's sharp, there's no rusted holes in it, and it's not brittle. You're going to ensure it's battle-worthy before you take it into battle. Our Bible is no different. We need to inspect it. We need to know it. We need to get through it. If somebody asks you why you believe in the Bible, can you answer it? If you can't answer it, that's probably a problem because how can you have faith in something that you can't defend? Most of the time people ask you, though, they say, 
Well, I don't believe the Bible, so defend it without using it. Because all you Christians say is, the Bible says the Bible says, but I don't believe in the Bible. And in their mind, that's a good basis. So we have to reach them where they are, and that is, without using the Bible, how do we use, say, the standard of the world to reach them on the truth of the Bible? And the ancient texts are all measured that use about three different ways to determine whether they're true. The first one is, what is the time frame from the original event or text to the first copies or first written events recording that? Number two, how many copies do we have? That allows us to check whether they are coherent through the copies. And number three, the accuracy of the original. Now, personally for me, I like prophecy. Prophecy, God says, I knew the end from the beginning. And when we look at prophecy, things like Daniel, there's several chapters in Daniel that talk about Alexander the Great, Mark Anthony, Cleopatra. And it's so accurate that skeptics have literally said it was written after the events took place. But it can't happen because Josephus, an ancient Jewish historian, records the high priest showing Alexander the Great the scripture and telling him he would succeed, which is why Jerusalem was the only city that was allowed to practice their own religion as he went through. Anyway, we're going to take these three reasons or three standards and put them against just the New Testament. Just the New Testament of the Bible, not even the whole Bible. So some famous works that we might have heard of, the first one is Plato. Not Plato, but Plato. Plato, his book was written in 427 to 347 B.C. The earliest copy we have is 900 A.D. That is a time span of 1,200 years. That's several generations before anybody wrote the next copy. We only have seven copies, and the accuracy between the copies is considered low by historians. But nobody's arguing whether or not Plato is correct or Plato is real. What about Caesar, the Annals of the Life of Julius Caesar? That was written in 100 to 44 B.C. The earliest copy we found, 900 A.D., that is a 1,000-year time span from the original to the first copy we have. And we only have 10 copies of this book. The accuracy between the copies is considered low. What about Aristotle? He's pretty famous. Well, he wrote his annals in 384 to 322 B.C. We don't find the first copy until 1,100 A.D., leaving a time span of 1,000 400 years. We do have 49 copies of Aristotle, but again, the accuracy of those copies and the original is considered low. Homer, he wrote the Iliad. He wrote that in 900 B.C. The earliest copy we have is 400 B.C. In comparison, that is only 500 years. Not too many generations in comparison to the other ones, so we're doing good. And we actually have 643 copies of the Iliad, meaning there are quite a few copies. It is shockingly accurate in the copies at 95%. Now, how do these line up with, again, just our New Testament? Well, the New Testament, we know, was written between 50 and 100 A.D. 
with the earliest copies coming in at 130 A.D. Worst case scenario, it's 80 years between original and copy. Best case, 30 years. The previous best was 500 years. So people who may have even seen the event or whose parents had seen the event were able to write these copies. We have 5,600 copies of the New Testament, besting the previous of 643. The accuracy of the New Testament copies is 99.5%, besting the 95% of Homer, because most of those errors are actually due to smudges and tears in the scrolls and not necessarily errors. So why is the New Testament so accurate? What makes it so accurate? And it's actually in the scribal process that they took in copying it. It's unlike any other book in history. The Jewish scribes solidified a process of the Pentateuch or the Torah. Those are the first five books of the Old Testament. How they copied that translated into the rest of the Old Testament and carried over into the New. So what does that look like? Well, the first thing they did is they used clean animal skins. That doesn't mean that the other books were written on dirty animal skins covered in mud, only kosher or clean in the Jewish faith animal skins. The binding of the manuscript, the leather, was also of a clean animal. And the quill they used to write, that was also of a kosher bird or a clean bird. They had writing limits. Each column could only have so many lines. The minimum was 48. The maximum was 60 lines per scroll. The ink had to be made to specific scribal specifications and had to be black, and it held up very well. They had to take it directly from the source, meaning not a single word or letter could be written from memory. The scribe had to have the reference material in front of them and read out loud before they wrote each word. Again, nothing from memory. Looking back at the Old Testament, when they got to Jehovah, they had to wipe off their pen, wash their body, and then they had to recite the following thing before writing the word Jehovah. I am writing the name of God for the holiness of his name, each and every time. It was double-checked, meaning each manuscript was checked within 30 days of completion. If there were so many as three pages that required any correction in the entire book, the entire manuscript had to be redone. That's pretty, pretty good. They didn't have backspace and delete either. Attention to detail. So, the letters had to have space around them. None of them could touch or that was an error. It wasn't clearly readable. Error. If your quill went through and tore the scroll, error. And you had to restart it. If you got three of those all the way through the entire book, the entire book was gone. And if the letter wasn't clearly decipherable as that letter, that was also an error. Confirmation. They counted each letter, word, and paragraph on the scroll. They then matched up the middle word and letter to the reference scroll. If they didn't match, it was invalidated. Storage locations. They had to be stored in sacred or safe places. Generally, they were stored inside 
houses of worship or the synagogues. An interesting thing, when they would come, if they thought a battle was coming, they would go out and take them to a safe place. The Dead Sea Scrolls, which made history, they are the oldest set of scripture that we have, were actually found in the dry riverbed known as a wadi in Qumran. That's why they get the name Wadi Qumran. Some kid playing with rocks threw a rock into a cave and heard a pot, or pot break, and now we have the oldest set of biblical scriptures that we have anywhere in the world. Shockingly, we have the entire book of Isaiah there, and it matched letter for letter with what we have today. That's how accurate the Bible is. And how do we have so many? Well, preservation techniques. Nothing containing the Word of God, once it was certified, could be destroyed. So they either had to bury it with people or keep it in the synagogue, but you couldn't destroy it. And these manuscripts or scrolls were expensive at the time. So where people would reuse them, rub it off and keep going or smear it and be able to rewrite, you couldn't do that with the Word of God. Now, how much work went into it? We're going to look real quick at the Old Testament and actually just the first five books, again, the Torah or the Pentateuch. There were 304,805 letters in the Pentateuch that they had to write just in the first five books. This isn't the old, the entire Old Testament. This is just the five books of Moses. Those constituted 79,794 words. Of those words, 6,828 of them is the word Jehovah, meaning they had to wipe the quill, wash their body, and then say the saying before they wrote that that many times. That is unlike anything else throughout all of history that you will find. It is so accurate that there are books written on the accuracy of the Bible. Many people have set out to disprove or discredit the Bible. All have failed. Many have actually converted. Remembering that this is a weapon, now we have con considered our weapon battle-worthy. But we can't just buy a gun, and decide that we're going to go out and face the enemy. We have to train with it. So we have to do magazine drills. How do we reload it? How do we operate it if there's a malfunction to clear that, to get that back in? We have to sight it, point of aim, point of impact. We have to zero it. We have to know about hold over and hold under at different ranges so that when we aim, we actually hit what we're looking at. You only get that through training. You have a sword, you're going to do swings and slashes and stabs and different blocks. Same thing with the Bible. You have to be in it. You have to be training in it if you're going to take it into battle. Peter, in 1 Peter 3, 5 through 17 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. That means you have to be ready at any moment to defend the word of God. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. In other words, they're going to come after you, but be ready. And then for it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. We can't just go out and do crazy things and say God told me to do it. That doesn't work. But if God tells us to do it, if you read through the Bible, God asked people to do some crazy things. And they did it, and he was with them. So that, if it is the will of God, is very important. And how you determine if it is the will of God is knowing what his word tells you, 
he will ask of you and what he says to do. Now the sword. We envision these armor and these weapons in our mind when we talk about them. But the sword, what type of sword comes to mind? If you're like me, this is the type of sword we're looking at. We're looking at Braveheart, a six-foot broad sword, something that would make Tim Allen grunt and talk about cutting men in half with a single swing. The Bible defines it, and the word it uses is makaira. It's actually classified as a large knife or small sword. Also known as a dagger. This is a picture of one. It came in two styles. One was a straight blade, one was a curved blade. Generally between 20 and 24 inches in length of the blade. Why was it that long? Well, it was for close-in person-to-person combat. This wasn't for your cavalry rider. This was when the enemy was on you. If you took something that was 20 to 24 inches and you plunged it into their torso, anywhere you send something 20 to 24 inches into the human body is probably going to hit something that is needed for the continuality of life. And that's why it's 20 to 24 inches. Now, the straight blade could be used for stabbing or slashing. The curved blade was pretty much only for slashing. You could stab with it, but it wasn't going to be very effective. So why wouldn't you go with the two-for-one instead of the one? Well, if you take that straight blade, and say you're in the line formation, yeah, you're probably going to have the straight blade because you're just stabbing. People are coming at you. There's men to your left, men to your right. You're not going to be slashing because you're going to be hitting your buddy. You're stabbing. But if you're the guy on the end defending the flank, you might be slashing more than you're stabbing. And if I take a straight knife and I slice into somebody, It goes through their armor, through the skin, through the muscle, and it hits that bone. At 90 degrees, you're going to have to drag it all the way through. It's going to take a lot more energy. And then I have to reload it and do it again. But if I take that curved blade, I sink it through the armor, through the skin, through the muscle, and I hit that bone, it's going to ride that bone on that curved blade, much like a surgeon's knife, and smoothly go around while still committing a whole lot of offense to the whole rest of the body. And you're going to use less energy. So you've got to know the weapon you want for the situation you're going to be in. They're not all the same. What about Jesus' sword? Jesus is our teacher. Jesus is the sensei, the grand master of Bible jitsu. He is the one who teaches us how to use the word as we watch his examples. He says that my sword is in my mouth. All throughout the Bible, we see that the breath of God is the weapon, and they will be devoured by or dissolved by the breath of God, the sword of his mouth. I'll fight against them with the sword of my mouth. It will be with him again. But again, we said you can use it for good and bad, defense and offense. Think back to creation. How did he create the word? The sword of his mouth. He took all of the elements, much like a chef, chopped them up, put them together and created everything that we know and even the things we don't know such as the spiritual realm. He took Adam from what is believed to be red clay because Adam actually means red. Cut him out of the clay, formed him and then what did he do? He breathed into him the breath of life. Keep in mind the root word for breath, spirit and wind is ruach. They all have the same root word. The breath of life, the wind of God, 
the Spirit of God, Ruach. He breathed that into Adam and gave him life. Then Adam doesn't have a helper. What does he do? Puts him to sleep. Uses the sword of his mouth, cuts out the rib, much like surgery. That's why we have a floating rib, and he creates Eve. So he's using his tongue to create. People get really offended when we say he's going to use his tongue to destroy you. It's no different. But within us is what's known as the nuclear protein. This is laminin. This is exactly what it looks like in your body. The purpose of this here protein is like glue to your cells. If this wasn't in there, you would be goo. Nothing would be held together. I took this slide from Google, but in the middle is a picture of the electron microscope image of laminin. It is a cross. Some people have put Jesus on it to show that he is there. He is the glue that is holding you together. He's the very thing in your creation that allows you to be who you are. Psalm, or I'm sorry, Proverb 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Do you see both things that are being said here? You can read this as two separate sentences at the exact same time. Death, the power of death is in the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Death here has several different meanings. Death, the process or state of the physical dying of the body. That's one meaning. Death, plague, a pandemic disease that causes death to a population. Remember that one. That's the second one. And three, death, a penalty or judgment, sentence of death. You can also read this as life is in the power of the tongue and those who will eat it will have its fruit. Life here means life, nourishment, such as food, life to have a prosperous, bountiful, blessed, favorable circumstance in life, or the last one, oath of promise. That's pretty interesting. So remember that. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who decide which fruit of that they will eat, That's what the reward they will get. Well, let's fast forward to Zechariah 14, 12. And this shall be the plague, plague, with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet, their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their tongue shall dissolve in their mouth. That's pretty graphic. we never seen anything like this. Zechariah would have never seen anything like this until modern history when we dropped a bomb on Nagasaki and Hiroshima and we watched people vaporize and we know that anti-aircraft gunners who were staring at the bombers when the bomb went off, their eyes dissolved in their sockets. Pretty impressive. The difference is Jesus can control it. Nuclear tongue, if you will. This seems pretty prolific, but it's very specific. Let's work backwards through this. The tongue shall dissolve in their mouth. Right now, we have the right, the ability to speak truth. But when Jesus comes back in the second coming and he decides to judge the world, those who refuse to speak truth will speak no more. They will have no tongue. For they refuse to use their tongue to speak truth. Those who wouldn't see the truth will lose their eyes. We are told that our body is the temple of God. We are to be the holy temple of the Spirit of God. 
Those who reject that become their own gods or let something else serve them as their god. That temple is then melted down and dissolved. Remember, all he has to do is undo the laminins. If he could speak you into creation, why do we think that maybe he can't speak us into oblivion? Jesus was tempted after going to the desert. He's baptized, and it says that the Holy Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He knew what the Spirit felt like, and he's driven into the wilderness for 40 days, 40 nights. At the end of the 40 days, here comes Satan. Think about it. Satan tempted Eve, and Eve tempted Adam, with what? Food. Fruit. We don't know that it's an apple. Everybody says it's an apple. Nowhere does it say it's an apple. But what does Satan say? Here's Jesus. He is on the field of battle. He's come as a human. I've done this before. I got him. So the first temptation comes, Matthew 4. If you are the Son of God, command these stones, become bread. He's going to topple Jesus right here. What does Jesus say? It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That is Deuteronomy 8.3. The Machaira he chose, Deuteronomy 8.3. Slash number one. Defensive, it appears. Okay, strike one. Satan doesn't get him with the flesh. Satan knows he was in heaven. He was perfect. I was in heaven before I fell and was consumed by the fire from within. I remember what that was like, and I wanted praise. That's what's going to topple him. He's going to want that again because he doesn't quite have what he had. So he goes with the spiritual attack. Matthew 6, or 4, 6, and 7. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. See that? Jesus fought back with it is written, so now he's going to throw out. It is written. He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. What's Jesus say? Yeah. It's written again. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 6.16. Kyra 2. Again, defensive. Satan's on his heels. Hmm. Flesh didn't work. Spirit didn't work. What's left? This is the win-win. This is everything he has all at once. The seven habits of highly effective tempters is about to come out. Why? Because you have to remember what happened. Mankind fell at the Tower of Babel. Bab-el. That is Hebrew. El is God. Bab is gateway. Babel was the gateway to God. If you go and figure out, study that, they wanted to build a temple to ascend to heaven, shoot God from his throne, and take over. That's why Nimrod, who was the leader of this build, is the prototype of the Antichrist. At that location, God separates us into the nations. That's the only time it ever happens. Genesis 11. Deuteronomy 32, 8, 9, which is almost never preached on as linked to Genesis 11, says that they were actually separated according to the number of the nation of Israel, people of God, or the heavenly host, depending on the version you take. The problem is, it can't be Israel, unless you break it down to Israel, the people of God. Because God doesn't have any people. He has just disqualified everybody, but says, I reserve the right to raise up a people of my own. 
in Deuteronomy. They say, okay, yeah, no problem. So they were actually assigned by the number of the heavenly host. Don't believe me? Look at Genesis 10. This is what's called a parenthetical insert. That means no time passes. This is like a narration, much like Revelation 5. There are 70 families that are listed there. Just seems random if you're not following it that from Noah getting off the ark and all this, all this go and Ham, Shem, and Jepheth to chapter 10 where it's just these are the 70 families. And then we hit Genesis 11. You almost ask yourself why. They have just listed every family group and one is missing. Israel. Why? Because Abram's not called until Genesis 12. We don't even hear about Jacob, who is the son of promise, who will become Israel until Genesis 28. So when God offers them all the other nations, they jump on it. Yeah, you can make your own nation, whatever. It's through the Exodus and the conquering General Joshua in the book of Joshua, when he takes the promised land, that God wins back the land for Israel. So when Jesus is here and he says, I came for the Jews, those are the only people who belong to God. They all serve all these other fallen heavenly beings at the time. It's something that the church never wants to talk about because it's complicated. But it's there if you look. So here comes the win-win. Remember, Satan owns the entire earth except for Israel. So what does he say? He takes them up to the high mountain and he goes, all these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. I will give you what you came for. I'm giving it all up. You just have to give up one thing. Worship me. He's like, I got this. There's no way he says no. He turns around. Away with you, Satan. There's the difference. That's offensive. Away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Deuteronomy 6.13. Of the three Machairas, he never left the book of Deuteronomy, and there were only two chapters that he used. Now, if it took us three shots, or it took Jesus three shots, it's probably going to take us a lot more. Albeit, two of them were defensive. This is the only one that has a command, away with you, Satan. I see it much like a gnat buzzing us at a picnic. Away with you. I'm done with you. Because it says Satan fled, and it waited for a more opportune time. This is when the angels came and strengthened and worshipped and encouraged Jesus. But when he comes back the second time, he's swinging for the fences. It's going to be a completely different thing. So to remind you, we are still in Ephesians 6, verse 17, and we're looking at the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We've pretty much dug into the sword, but if you know me, much like a telemarketer, oh wait, there's more, we're going to look at the word word, because why not? And the word word has three meanings. The first one we're going to look at is gafé. The gafé is a book. You take a bunch of pages with a concurrent theme through them and you stick something at the other end, you have a gafé. Your Bible, classified as a gafé. It comes from the word for quill and is also where we get the word for pencil lead or graphite. Gafé. However, if you fight with a gafé in spiritual warfare, you are literally throwing the book at them. But it's not effective. Because they are shooting flaming arrows, if you remember. And at some point, they're going to put an arrow through your book, set it on fire, and pierce you with it. Because this is not what we're told to fight with. So we move on. Logos, or logos, depending on how you pronounce it, the Greek word. This means the Bible. The Bible is gafé, 
No other gafe is logos. That's the difference. Now we're getting into a weapon. However, although it looks like a sword, it's not always effective. Why? Because you can't play Bible roulette. You can't be tempted on something and just open the Bible, decide that's the scripture you're going to throw back at the enemy and think it's going to work. If you've ever seen Christian uh, comedian Tim Hawkins, he has a joke that he forgot his favorite Bible verse, and so he just decided, I'll go with something. Uh, Psalm 38.7, that's got to be a good one. So he signed all of his books, you know, Tim Hawkins, Psalm 38.7. The problem is, is if you are being, say, blasphemed, blasphemed at your work, and somebody is wrongfully accusing you of something, and they're lying, and you go to Psalm 38.7, Bible roulette, and you throw this at them, you are going to say, for my loins are full of inflammation and there is no soundness in my flesh. That is not bringing the peace that surpasses under any understanding. This is actually irritating in more than one way. And it's not going to work. Why? Because you picked the wrong Makaira. In modern day warfare, this is the equivalent of hip-firing a machine gun of 500 rounds at a 1,000-meter target. Yeah, you're fighting, but you aren't doing a darn thing. So what are we looking at? We are looking for a rhema. A rhema is when you dig into the logos of God and he speaks to you through the word, and then you realize, oh, this book is alive and breathing. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it will speak to you through the Holy Spirit from the Father, through the Word of God. Remember, John 1 tells us that the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. It is, in fact, Jesus. Now we have something sharp. Now we have something that relates to the situation that we are using it in. But the interesting thing is, in order to use this, you have to know it before the battle. Nowhere in battle do you see the soldiers stop, open their field manual, research the tactics, and then attack the enemy. They've all trained drilled and rehearsed before they go on that mission. We should be doing the same thing with the Word of God. Now, what sort of things do we have to do? We have to be reading. We have to be studying. Our daily Bible reading isn't generally our study because a lot of times we just try to read a chapter, get through it, yep, I checked it off. There's days that what should have taken me 15 minutes takes me three hours and I only make it a verse. There's days I make it through the whole thing in 30 minutes and I don't, it's like, oh, I I really didn't get much today. There's days that my mind blows and it'll take me two days to get through what in the world I'm trying to get. But when you're digging in the Bible, when you're training, that's the same thing as doing your weapons drills, your weapon reloading drills, your sword drills, all of that. Being somebody who decides that they are going to buy a gun, test fire it at the range, shooting at paper people at 50 feet, and then think you can take on the world, doesn't work. It's like taking your gun, watching all of the John Wick movies, and saying, I now can defeat anybody in the world because I've seen it. Or taking that one half-hour self-defense class at the Y and then thinking that you can watch the UFC and go out there and beat everybody in a bar fight. That makes no sense to any of us. And yet this is what we do as Christians. We'll go and we'll watch sermons, we'll get books to read on the book, but we won't actually read the book. And then we wonder why we're failing. 
why things are happening. Keep in mind, if I take my gun and I train with it for 10 years and then I watch John Wick and he does this cool thing where he pushes the mag release and sort of flicks his wrist and the mag flies out, you think to yourself, holy crap, let me think about that. When I push the mag release, it's a friction, it's only friction holding that mag still in the gun. The base plate is a weight, but it's also there to protect it, so it overcomes the friction by weight and gravity pulls it out of the gun. However, if I flick it, I can create centrifugal force at the base plate, exponentially causing an increase in weight, freeing the magazine more speedily from the gun. Not only that, when I flick it back, my magazine is there for reload. Don't put your hand in front of it. Only Jesus should have holy hands. You come in front, over the top, not in front. Rack the slide with a gross motor skill because we know when our heartbeat exceeds 117 beats per minute, we start losing fine motor skills. So we don't want to do this. We want to do this. And then we're back on target with all of our gross motor skills still intact. Which means you can't be trying to research the Bible while you're under all of life's pressures. It doesn't work. You have to be prepared for the battle before the day comes. Same thing. You have to be training in the martial arts, then watch the UFC, think that's pretty cool, go to the mat, try it, you'll probably figure it out. But if all you're doing is listening to sermons and reading books on the Bible but not reading the Bible... You're fooling yourself. In fact, this is your Bible. The B-52 can carry all those different weapon munitions. But if you're not choosing the white, right weapon for that delivery system against the right target, you're just making a whole lot of noise. But when you know what weapon system to deliver on the target, like a general, you can direct a surprising amount of firepower that is highly effective and actually saves lives and defends yourself because we are in a war. Remember, Jesus didn't promise us that everything was going to go nice and easy. He said, you are in a war. Let's see what he said. John 16.33 These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. May is consistent on, or contingent on us. He gave us peace. Whether you accept it or not is up to you. In the world, you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. In other words, it's not going to be all roses. It's not going to be easy. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. The sales pitch is for the next life. Not necessarily this one. It helps in this one, but the promise is in the next one. Let's look at Matthew 10, 22. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. We don't like that word endure in church. We don't preach on endure in church because it doesn't put butts in pews and get you online views because it basically is saying suffer in silence. Embrace the suck when you're in the muck. Suffer in silence, keeping your eye on your Savior, not your circumstance. That's pretty much what it means. And then in the end, you will be saved, meaning you won't be eternally separated from God. Not necessarily that you won't be killed. I worked midnights for 10 years, and I saw the same commercials at 2.30 and 3 o'clock in the morning. It drove me absolutely nuts, and that is pastors selling $20 or $50 bottles of spring water that people are saying, my car was paid off after I bought spring water. My house was paid off. I got $20,000 from the IRS. Charlatans. 
number one reason why they're charlatans, they wouldn't be selling you the water if they could make that much money. They'd keep it for themselves. If they were that nice, they'd be selling it at the Super Bowl commercials and on prime time, not at 2.30 in the morning. That's the prosperity gospel. God wants you to live your best life. God wants you to be happy. Do what you want. He will save you. You don't have to change. He gave you the desires of your heart. Whatever that is, do, live, however you like. No. That's also called doctrines of demons. Because he never promised us that it would be a pleasure cruise to heaven. He said, you're on a battleship. Get ready for war. We are to fight. And in fact, if you look through the Old Testament, it's a great area to see how people are attacked, how they respond, the outcome. You can even see behind the curtains and the move of God, the move of Satan. And when you start to learn those tactics, you can see them coming at you in your life. When you can see the attack formations coming, that gives you time to choose your Makaira. That's your preparation time. That's all the time you get. Also, when you are going to swing that weapon, you swing it hard and you hit something important. Don't play with this. Because every guy knows if you're in a bar fight, you throw that haymaker, but you decide, oh, I don't want to hurt him too bad, and I throw it at 30%. What'd you just do? You gave that guy hope, and that mental hope can overcome any force that you throw because he thinks he can win now. You throw it at 100% and you knock a tooth out, all of a sudden they go, I might want to rethink this. That's what we need to do to the enemy. But what do we do? We think we can control these temptations and these urges, and we play with it. Swing the sword, hit something hard, hit something vital, hit something important. I'll give you an example. When my wife was diagnosed with cancer in early October, I was at work one day. I wholly admit the guy that came up to me and said this, he was trying to help me. I understand that. We're still friends. We still talk. Don't think we didn't even argue that night. But what he said is, you're going to have to get mad at God because your wife has cancer. And I said, why is that? Well, you know, your wife has cancer, and God let her get it. So you're going to have to be mad at God at some point. I'm not saying you are now, but, but just know it's coming. I had a cancer scare, and I got mad at God. And then when I didn't have cancer, I was okay. And then I had several people who were trying to make me feel good and, and be nice and encouraging, and I get that. Your family doesn't deserve this. You guys do such great things for God. In that moment, granted, I don't always answer questions like this, but I answered it because it was one of those moments where I actually understood the Jesus-Peter moment. Remember that one when they go to Caesarea Philippi and Peter's like, you are the Messiah because Jesus asked him, who do you say that I am? Who do you say? And he says, you are the Messiah, the Christ. And he says, no one can tell you that except God and the Spirit of God. Perfect. Peter, upon you I will build my church. What happens next? I'm going to have to die. Peter takes him aside. You, you can't say that sort of stuff. What does he do? The Bible literally says he turned his back on Peter faced the disciple and said, get behind me, Satan. He's not addressing Peter. He's addressing the spirit that's trying to attack him from within there. And that's where I was. I knew what they were trying to do. I had peace. I knew that God was the God who knew this was coming from before all of creation, knew where this was going to go, and I had no problem with it. But I knew that spirit was trying to get into me, trying to sow fear, trying to shake me, and so I had to draw a Makaira, send it through both lungs and the heart, and have them walk away. Because what I said is, 
You got upset because you believe you are deserving of something good. You don't believe you're deserving of something suffering. I believe that I'm a sinner, and the only thing that I deserve is to be separated from God for eternity in the lake of fire. And then I went into great detail about how Jesus describes the lake of fire. And I said, that's exactly what my wife deserves. That's exactly what each one of my kids deserve, and his only thing is Jesus. And anything short of us burning in the lake of fire for all of eternity is grace and mercy. Mainly mercy, but grace that I can get anything above that. And they just looked at me, and they turned around, and they walked off. Don't play with things that you don't want to wrestle with. Here are some of my battle verses. Feel free to use them. This is one when you've already failed. I use it a lot. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What happens when we fail? We don't feel good enough. What does the enemy immediately do? He seizes upon that and says, you're not good enough. Christians don't do that. That means you're not a Christian. That means you're not saved. That means if the rapture happens in the next minute, you're stuck here. And oh, by the way, the Bible teaches that you knew the gospel, and so if the rapture happens, you will be deceived, and you're screwed. And so what do we do? We start focusing on our situation and ourself and not our Savior, and we start to go into fear and panic mode. We start reading the Bible. No, we start hiding in a corner thinking, I can't even pray to God. I'm not even worthy to come before him. Remind the devil that you are never worthy, you're still not worthy, you aren't worthy, not worthy, will never be worthy until the day of rapture. That's when you'll be worthy. It's only through his righteousness and work, which you accepted, that you are worthy. It is much like a ticket to paradise. Jesus purchased it, he's waiting at the ticket booth. He says, it's free, I paid for it, it's free to you, it cost me everything. Please, come take it. And there are people who refuse to accept the fact that Jesus came in a 100% man, 100% man in the flesh, 100% God in the spirit, lived a sinless life, sacrificed himself for us on the cross, stormed both chambers of Sheol, resurrected on Sunday, and now ascended at the right hand, where he is literally making intercession for us every moment of every day. Every sin past, every sin present, every one you will do. So you're never not worthy, but you were actually never worthy to begin with. And both of those are true. And we have people today thinking that because they're good, they can walk past the ticket booth, right to the gate. They know and never expect to get into Cedar Point without a ticket, yet they expect to walk through the gates of heaven without the ticket. It makes no sense. Remind Satan, you weren't good enough, you're not good enough. And that's not the problem. That's why you came to Jesus in the first place. This expounds in Romans 8, 38, or 38 and 39. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life. Neither angels nor demons. Neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you have to go from 1 John 1, 9 to Romans 8, 38 and 39 to completely defeat him. That's two strikes. You have to be able to adapt to the attack. That's maneuvering. How about Corinthians, 2 Corinthians? In this one, just remember, you're not good enough, but you are loved enough. That's the moral of those two right there. 2 Corinthians 10, 
5. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. This means you evaluate everything. Everything. New technologies. New medications. New treatments. New exercises. Every desire or yearning that you have, you put through the filter, and if it makes it through the other side, is yes, Jesus would say this is good through the word of God, you're good. There have been drastic problems when we failed to do this. Think about it. I just told you the Bible was written in 130 A.D. at the end. Islam comes about several centuries later. This is after Paul wrote, If we ourselves or an angel from heaven come down and give you a different gospel, let it be anathema. Let it be damned. Let it not be able to continue. That's what that means. Don't give it the breath. Where did Islam start? Muhammad received a word from an angel of God, and yet they link it back to the Bible. They see Jesus as a great prophet, but they didn't use his teachings to see that it was actually a doctrine of demons with Satan, who was manifested as an angel of light, all of which was already in the Bible for hundreds of years that they could have reviewed. That's how serious it is. That's how we have to evaluate it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. That means no one's special. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make a way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. That comes off as great news, right? I can walk down this path, and at any time I can turn off and return. That's not what it's saying. You can't play with these things. These things are not here for your toys and enjoyment. They are here for your death and destruction. That's why they come and tempt you. The easiest way to get off this path is to not get on the path or at the beginning. There is a place where you pass the point of no return. And that is generally at the beginning. Look at Proverbs 4, 14, and 15. Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn away from it and pass on. In Modern English, if I wanted to emphasize something, I would bold it, underline, all caps, exclamation, right? Even change colors. In biblical language, what do they do? They repeat it. If you didn't notice, there's a few warnings in there. Some signs we still have around today. Do not enter the path of the wicked. Assuming you walked right past that one and you decided to get on the path, he says, do not walk in the way of evil. Don't go down the darn thing. You already got on it. Just come back. Once you start walking down it, there's, here comes the big warning. <clears throat> Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn away from it. And pass on. Pass on is both how do you stay away from it and how do you get off of it. It's both a warning and advice. At some point, you're going to hit what's called the firing train of sin, at least to me. And that's found in James. We're going to James 12, well, James 1, 12 to 15. It says, blessed is the man who endures temptation. There it is again. That's like an oxymoron in the church. Blessed to endure temptation. Another way is, you're doing really good. 
you're being blessed when you have to suffer the hardest things that you want to do that you don't want to do or that you have to do that you don't want to do. That's what that's already starting. So there, you're already blessed. Why? Well, go back to the shield of faith. He's building your faith. We're building down the fruits of the Spirit. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those he loves, or to those whom love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Here we go. Here's the firing train of sin. Does everybody know what I mean by a firing train of sin? Firing train is something that's used to set off an explosive device. It is a list of components or a series of components that have to go off in an order to make this thing go boom, which is why bomb squads, when they use the water cannon or the disruptor, they're all called disruptors because they disrupt the firing train, thus turning a bomb into a paperweight. Here's the firing train of sin. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. We're going to dig into this a little bit. The very first sermon I ever gave while standing outside in hail in November was called, Do Not Be Enticed. This was the main scripture. For more on that, we'll, we'll link that one. But let's break down some of these words real quick so you can see what's going on here. But each one is tempted when he is drawn. Drawn, this is a verb meaning to be taken in tow by one's own desires. It can be an action or state of being. Consider yourself sitting in a car. You decide you want that handicapped spot because it's close enough. You are drawn to the handicapped spot. And you can sit there as long as you want. Right up until somebody pulls a tow truck up and hooks up to your car and you no longer in control of your destiny. It's kind of what it's saying here. So you're drawn away by your own desires. Desire means a great desire, craving, or longing for something. This could be in any form. The word itself is morally neutral. However, it's used several times in the New Testament. Every time it is in the negative. This is the desire to want to do something or believe something. This is dangerous. This is the seeding of your mind. If the drawn is how they got you to the field, this is how they seed you in the field. And enticed. This is also a verb, meaning there's action. This is the only time this word is used in the Bible. It is actually a hunting and fishing term, meaning to lure prey from a place of safety so that it may be snared or hooked. That's exactly what's happening when you are being enticed. He is trying to take you from a place of safety, which is always the word of God, holding every thought captive and being filtered through it, to a place of where you want to go because you're drawn and enticed by your desire. And then he hooks you or he snares you and then he has you. This is the point of no return because then it has, given, it has conceived and gives birth to sin. If our society has proved nothing else, you can still turn from desire, even though it's conceived. Although it's demonic, we can get rid of the baby before it's born. We can turn from sin. But when it's full grown, it brings forth death. The word here, thanaton. The meaning is to terminate physical life. Death. The root word, thanaton, is thanatos. 
Anybody watch the Marvel movies? Because if so, you're hearing something. You're hearing the word Thanos. He was the villain who, shockingly, decided that he was going to save the universe by killing half of it. That is a doctrine of demons, literally portrayed in a Hollywood movie. He was aptly named and highly deceived. But he had good intentions. So how do we see the right path? Well, easy. Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light unto my path. Your word. The Bible. Everything is pushing us back to this one thing that should be our bedrock. Another scripture, battle verse. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. And it is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This is the cookie jar. What happens when you got caught, you had that cookie in your hand and your parent came around the corner? Same thing that happened in the garden. Parent asks, Adam, what did you do? She made me do it. Eve, what did you do? Serpent made me do it. We do not take responsibility. If you're caught with the cookie, what do you say? It fell on the floor. I was going to pick it up because the dog didn't eat it, and I saved the dog's life because it has chocolate. All of a sudden, you're a hero. Problem is, Jesus knows why you did it, how you did it, when you did it, and knew you were going to do it before you even thought about doing it. There's no arguing. Once you know that, that's where the fear of God comes. It's not that we're scared that he's going to come down upon us, but it's that he can do more to us than that which is in the world. He knows, and there's no excuse that I can make that he will accept. And I can't get out of it with any amount of argument because he has perfect knowledge of why I did what I did. And he knows that I chose that over him. Now, kind of look at our country. Most of us would vote that it is not running well. Okay, We have people storming across our southern borders. We're kicking our own children out of schools to house them. And we're spending billions of dollars that we could be spending on our own citizens on them. We have senators and congressmen who are speaking out against us. Literally, some of them say that they are more, more loyal to Somalia than they are to our own country. And we go, it's Joe Biden's fault. We go, it's the Democrats' fault. It's the Republicans' fault. It's everybody's fault. Whose fault is it? Well, we got to go to 2 Chronicles 7.14. When Samuel dedicated, or Solomon dedicated the first temple, he said this about what would happen if Israel ever went awry from God and then decided to come back. If my people who are called by my name well, that qualifies that right there as, in that time, the Jewish people. In today's world, that would be us. So the problem isn't any of those people. We kind of have to own this. Why? Because if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. 
We as the Christians have been sitting on the sidelines so scared of getting canceled, so scared of upsetting people, thinking that we're being good citizens by not standing up to the evil that comes to power, that I'm not saying that we need a revolution. I'm just saying that we seem to be pretty quiet while other people are being very vocal about things. Seems to be turning. But God's saying, I don't judge your nation by the atheists who don't even call on my name. I judge it by you. I said, I would bless those who bless you to Abraham. I will curse those who curse you. Your nation is doing that because you have leaders who hate you. Don't believe me. Look at Leviticus Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. They are the blessing and cursing or judgment of a nation based on how we as those as his people are living. He literally says stuff like, I will cause the rain to stop. I want to get your attention, turn back to me. Oh, you didn't listen. I will take fathers out of the house, turn back to me. I will empty your cities. Your highways will be ruined. Animals will attack. I will make the invader or the illegal alien come into your country and they will eat what you grow and they will take over what is yours. And I will give you leaders who hate you. Literally the definition of what we are seeing in the United States of America is in the book based on how we are living because the Christian church has the same divorce rate as the world. The Christian church has the same pornography viewing rate as the world. The Christian church was more worried about having a bumper sticker than having a savior that they will stand up for. We're more worried about getting criticized and likes on stinking social media than we are about going out and saving people. And he's had enough. He says, I'm doing this so that you will turn to me. It's not too late. It seems like it's too late. His word says it's not too late. And we want to blame everybody else and, and hold, so they want to go out and hold signs at the LGBTQRS or whatever else letters they've added, signs, you'll burn in hell. We should be holding those in the church. Once we are held accountable and we decide to get our stuff right, then we'll save the world. For the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. We read that as defensive. Like we're going to hold on till the end and we're okay with that. Except it actually reads the gates of hell shall not withstand the church. We are to be offensive. That's why he says occupy until I return. Nowhere are we to be on the defensive. He says, I have overcome the world. I have given you everything that is mine. You will do more than I ever did. And yet we're sitting here scared in the corner in the freest world, freest nation in the world with all access to his word, able to do everything without recourse. And yet our brothers and sisters in Nigeria are dying by the hundreds to stand up for their faith. And we yell and scream because somebody says we can't send a Bible to school with our kids. Another one, Psalm 103.12. As far as the east is from the west, so has he removed our transgressions from us. I'm so glad he said east and west because if, if you sail north and you hit the North Pole, you don't even have to turn around, you're going south. But if I'm sailing to the west, my life is in ruin, I think I'm doing good, I'm in control of this ship, everything's going well, I'm just headed west. Head west, young man, head west. What happens? There is a sailing term that they used when they hit danger, where they needed to change course 180 degrees. It wasn't turn around. It wasn't spin the ship. Somebody would just yell, repent! And they immediately turned the ship 180 degrees and sailed in the opposite direction. That's where we get the term. It's a sailing term. 
But if you turn and you sail east, how far do you go east before you start west? It never happens. He's saying your sin will never catch up to you in eternity. Because I have it. As far as the east is from the west. Another term we use is an archery term. The unlucky soul that had to stand down range at the archery tournament would go over and look where the arrow hit, and if you didn't hit the bullseye, they yelled, Sinner! Just told you you missed the mark. That's what sinning means, to miss the mark. We've made it very offensive to people because we call them that when we are all sinners. The bottom line is, where is your armor right now? Do you even have armor? And if you have armor, is it as in this picture? Is it nice and shiny and sitting at home? Because if you don't have the stuff when the battle comes to your doorstep, you are ill-prepared. Or are you in the Word? Do you have your shield of faith? Have you researched truth and righteousness and all of that? And are you ready for the fight, no matter when it comes, how it comes, because you know the war has already been won? We are told in the book of Revelation, when he writes to the churches, he said, hold fast, hold firm what you have. That means to hold with a death grip. You couldn't let go if you wanted to. The only way to release what you have is to cut your hands off. That's the grip we are to have upon our shield and our sword, the word of God and our shield of faith. But what is happening to so many Christians, number one, because we're giving them prosperity gospel so that they feel good, not so that they change and so that they're refined. Because iron sharpens iron only when it's smacking into it. That's not nice. It doesn't feel good. To endure isn't nice. It doesn't feel good. But it refines you. We need to refine each other. Hold each other accountable. Not judge each other, but hold each other accountable. Hold fast what we have because when you think you found something better or you just get so tired that you set it down it is in that moment you are defenseless and then you'll get attacked and you'll wonder why God why have you done this to me you, you put your weapons down why are you yelling at me do not be defenseless hold fast what you have be in the word hold the faith and be ready for the fight because if you haven't noticed it's either here or it's coming for you pretty quick. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for this time. I pray that the word was faithfully relayed. I ask that your will be done, and I ask that you would bless all of us as we go. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.